So I was reading the readings for this Sunday for Proper 12, and we continue the saga of Jacob and Rachel and Rebecca and Isaac and Esau and Leah and Laban. And so I'm going to talk about that, but I thought three things emerged from reading that for me this week. Uh, does God work through families? Where do we get the spiritual energy to preserve in our family life and by extension in all relationship, the spiritual energy? And what is the role of tradition in understanding how we behave in relationship? And I think uh, in Paul's reading from Romans, one of the most, actually this is sort of the predestination section in uh, Romans 8, which I'm not going to talk about today. But he also speaks about the spirit at work in people's lives and how we understand it. And it's very, very good uh, what he says about that. And then in Matthew, we have every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is old and what is new. So we have a lot of understanding or think we do in this country about uh, family values. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and see. Uh, maybe it'll prompt some response. So we have Jacob who's been sent into uh, the land of Canaan by Rebekah, his mother mainly, but through Isaac, who can't stand the Hittite women that Esau has married, and he wants, uh, they want him to have wives from their home country, or him to have a wife from his own country. So he goes to Laban, who's a, some relative, and uh, he meets Rachel, and he falls in love with her, and he wants to marry her. And so Laban says to Jacob, uh, you can marry her if you work for me for seven years, and after seven years, then you can marry her. So he does that, and when the seven years are up, uh, he tells Laban that he'd like him to send Rachel into the tent, and uh, they want to get married, and as it turns out, he wakes up the next morning. I'm not quite sure what that meant. I mean, he, you know, I, it's sort of mysterious. But he wakes up and he goes, oh, it's Leah. <laughs> and so Laban says, well, it's not the custom in our country to uh, have uh, the second born married before the first born. So you married Leah. If you work for me for another seven years, then you can have Rachel as your wife. Now you got two wives. Now, this is a little bit uh, different understanding than we have of the family, correct? So uh, we, we uh, have some different view about what, what that might mean. And permit me to say that the, that the family values that are talked about in this country, or our understand, most of us here, it looks to me, we're, are from what they call the bourgeois family in uh, the 19th century. That's where we were from. And the values of the bourgeois family uh, are the ones who have, uh, have become influential in the West because of the net migration off the farm and the industrialization of the West. You know? On farms, 
Everybody was working together, so the kids were out with dad sometimes and giving mom a little relief while she was cooking for the hands. And then they could come back in and there was go, but we were all together. We were all working together, and that's what rural life is, agricultural life. But once you begin to move into cities and you have manufacturing jobs and so forth, we get the deal where it's, honey, you stay home, look after the kids, and I'll, do, I'll earn the money. That was the middle class way in this country. And so we have attached to that a value that maybe isn't justified. And we've also had to understand that the, the notion of family and the, what has happened in family life um, is uh, plural, to say the least. So when we read about the biblical accounts and people, you hear people tell you about how we need to restore uh, the biblical values to the way in which we understand marriage, I want to say which ones. Yeah. <laughs> you know, can you let me know about that? What, what is it? Now, remember, when we're speaking about Jacob, we're speaking about somebody who in the Hebrew, it says, was morally innocent when he was young. And we, we can construe morally innocent to mean uh, guileless, naive, or somebody who has no moral center of any kind. And the way in which he has behaved throughout his life is as a trick, trickster, a manipulator, somebody who is always trying to get one up on people and to do this. And I read a commentary on this passage this week and says, one wonders if this is a case of destiny produced by character. <laughs> right? Yeah. With Jacob. And so Laban tricks him. He, he tricks him. And, you, and so you can say, well... Maybe it, maybe it serves him right. Here's another thing I've just observed from this text, and some uh, contemporary scholars would talk about this. Um, uh, we're told that Jacob loves Rachel. Uh, both Leah and Rachel are given no opportunity to exercise volition in this case. And in the ancient Near East, uh, that was the way it is. Although, I have to say this too, if we're connecting the dots, that uh, when I was a little boy, certainly with my grandparents and their friends in their marriages, which were by all intents uh, happy and fairly serene, there was one vote. There was one vote. My grandfather's vote was the vote. You know? So when my Aunt Frida, who had returned with my great uncle from Germany in 1938, where they thought they were going to retire, and then they realized, oh, no, we better come back. <laughs> They're sitting at the table in 1938. Even when I was a kid, my great uncle Merritt and my grandfather each had a turkey. So they carved a turkey at each end of the table. And Uncle Merritt was deaf as a post. And he had one of those hearing aids that goes in here with the thing down and it clipped into the deal. So when things got controversial, he would turn his hearing aid off. <laughs> right? So Aunt Frida, you had to have met Aunt Frida to know this. She says at the dinner table in 1938 on Thanksgiving, November 1938, you know, they don't tell you all the good things about Hitler. 
So my grandfather's carving the turkey. I could just see him do that, carving the turkey. He's got the knife in his hand. He says, listen here, Frida. We're not going to have that kind of conversation in this house. So she shut up. You think that had happened today? No. So I realized then, you know, things began to change in his lifetime for darn sure. There, there it is. Now we have two votes in the family, in all families, two votes. And it reminds me of what Winston Churchill once said, that the democracy is the worst form of government there is except for all the others. Uh, we're in a better situation now because I think the, the plural understanding of family has been actually a positive influence uh, on the way in which people understand their relationships, even though it seems that they're all over the place. It's not true. There are lots of people who wish to make commitments to one another, and in this country we're beginning to honor that in a way that I think is, is life-giving. Remember, too, um, my, uh, here, one of my heroes, Edwin Friedman, said, the best relationships, the best marriages are symptom-free 70% of the time. Right? So 30% of the time, you have what some refer to as issues. <laughs> Now, that doesn't discourage me because the fact of the matter is that 70% uh, isn't bad, right? Uh, I'm, I'm glad it isn't higher, uh, you know, lower, rather. So uh, that's a good thing. Paul gives us some help in Romans 8 in this way when he says, The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought but that that very spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. Those are the sounds, and those are the things that sometimes we refer to as the still, small voice that we know is not our own. It comes from within. And that's from the Spirit of God. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So that's a commercial message also for relationships to persevere. To persevere when it may be all too easy to not persevere. So it's a reminder that that's the case. My understanding of Matthew's gospel, notice, by the way, we read a whole string of parables, little tiny parables, one right after another. So I hope that gives some support for um, biblical scholarship to demonstrate that these gospels are put together by Matthew. He, he arranged the material in an editorial way. It doesn't just somebody who stood up there and went da 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 da. It may have more, you know, but it always occurred to me that the extreme biblical critics, that some of whom taught me in seminary, uh, acted as if Jesus never said the same thing more than once. I mean, 
I say the things more than once all the time. You we know. We <laughs> know. So, the, fa the fact of the matter is, is that it's entirely possible. But Matthew places these together uh, in an editorial package, and that, that's why it seems kind of uh, like that. But at the end, uh, he says something uh, about, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And he means the great tradition with a capital T. The, the ways in which we uh, think about things and act and relate to one another, right? And so what we're coming to in this country and in other places is the way we understand family and relationship and the way in which we understand these things varies from constituency to constituency. So we, 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 we are creating in the same, using the tradition to create now a new tradition of how these things are done. And none of us, I think, should fear that kind of thing. Much of the co uh, controversy and difficulty comes out of a, a variety of understandings of family um, and that you and I should be, not be advocates for a single understanding of family, but for a plural understanding of family. I was watching a YouTube video last week uh, where the person was talking about this and also said something that I think is very interesting. In the United States, most people live in urban areas. And Christianity began as an urban movement. And one of the difficulties that we have is that uh, the tradi traditional Christians are mostly located in rural or semi-rural parts of the United States where there are more plants than people, as somebody said, right? And where the church needs to be is in the city. And what's happened is it, the church is not in the city. And the level of skepticism and uh, a critical view of uh, organized religion and so forth is very common in cities where people think they're, they want to be nuanced, they want to be... Uh, educated, they want to be all of these kinds of things, and they think that's the way to be. And we have to figure out how not to do, how to do this differently. So the people like that begin to see that uh, this message can be compelling, that your greatest place of safety and assurance is in Jesus Christ, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development. So the issues of uh, Laban and Rachel and Leah are going to continue next week. So there's going to be more of that. And it's going to hold before us once again how we uh, think about a new model of what this means for us and how we give thanks. You know, in some ways it's very confusing, but it's exciting times, isn't it? There's a lot of things that are, that are a lot of signs of hope, and it doesn't appear to be because it creates a whole lot of uh, controversy. But I think if there's anybody in, the, in this country who can manage the change, uh, it's Christian people. So we need to get to work. Amen.